Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. So glad to be with you this morning. Happy New Year. I haven't been here last week and was celebrating with all of you with those baptisms. Wasn't that amazing to see it last week? Which is amazing. Uh, I was watching in the South just so celebrating what God was doing. Well, welcome to the new year and welcome to this new series called The Devoted Ones. And we're continuing to wrestle with the question, what does it mean? What does it look like for Christians, followers of Jesus, to be devoted in this time, in this region, in this city, in 2018? And that's why we've decided to continue our journey in 1 Corinthians, going back to Paul working day in and day out to define for us what it means to look like Christians, sent ones, devoted ones, to live in a great thriving urban city that we love called the GTA and yet look more like heaven than the city. Now let's all start the new year by reminding ourselves about Corinth again. The city was known as a secondary powerful trading city, so people from all over the Roman Empire would settle there and live there. It's like Toronto to New York, not as powerful, but up there. It also was multicultural to the core. It was a religious gathering place. The world did business there. All sorts of old and new religions intermingled. It was famous. It was globally known at the time for sexual diversity, allowing and promoting sexuality in any and all forms. And if you read the historians, they will tell you, just like our culture, self-promotion and self-help and self-discovery was the gas in the car and was the lifeblood of the city. It's just like Toronto. Now, Paul turns his attention as we're now halfway through the book, to three conditions that are found in every single culture on earth, in every town, every village, every city, all over the earth. So here's his now new conversation with us. What do we do about marriage? What do we do about divorce? What do we do about being single or being found single again? What does God think about these things? How does God react to these things? What is sinful? What is spiritual? What is allowed? What is not allowed? What does a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ do with marriage, do with divorce, do with remarriage, and do with singleness? Now, I know what's happening in the room already. At this very moment, as I'm beginning to mention these categories and these ideas, there's a defensiveness growing in the room or a closeness. Because this room is filled with human beings that have stories. Stories filled with pain or history or politics or bad encounters at church or... Listen, here's what I ask as we get into this next sort of three-week run. I'm going to ask every single one of us all here at Ajax this morning, all of you at Port Perry, anyone listening or watching online, just take a moment to stop right now to close your eyes if you wouldn't mind doing that for a moment. And if you could just take a moment and could you whisper to Jesus these words... Just say, Jesus, I'm willing to hear what you have to say, and I will obey you with your help. Help me trust you in this moment. And if you can just say amen when you're done, that would be great. Because as we get into these topics, we have to have a profound openness before Jesus so he can actually speak in greater way than our history, our pain, our family, our culture, or our worldview. Chris Rock, the famous comedian, once said, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? The reason why that's so funny is because it's true, right, everyone? Now, the question we need to begin wrestling with this morning is that, is that the only options we're left with? 
Now, we live in a time just like Corinth and Paul's experience. Corinthian culture was hedonistic, and when it came to marriage, marriage was not the place where one should or would experience sexual fun or fulfillment. Wives back then were for producing heirs. Children, lovers, and parties and clubs and one-night stands were for fun. So before we get into our passage today and we begin to wrestle with marriage and singleness and boredom and loneliness and all of that together, what I want to do is go back to 1 Corinthians 6. Because without the background of 1 Corinthians 6, we will actually miss the power and the profundity of chapter 7. And I preached some of this before, but I'd like you to go back and I'm going to re-preach a little section. By the time we get to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul has addressed sexual immorality, not, not, not once, not twice, but four times. And this is where we meet him in, in verse 13. He said, the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for Jesus and Jesus for the body. Paul says our bodies are for and are owned. All of us, all we do and all we are, are for Jesus if you are a follower of Jesus today. So you cannot do what you want with your body any longer. So do not think that Jesus is okay with what you are doing sexually if it is wrong. He's not okay with it. Your rights are not stronger than his rights. Sexual immorality is not allowed to be given into or participated in as a Christian. Now, we've done this this whole series let me do it again. That phrase, sexual immorality, is the word porneia, where we get our word pornography from. It is an actual, literal word. It's a catch-all phrase used by Orthodox Jews to summarize every act in the Old Testament that's forbidden. It always, so anytime an Orthodox Jew would write this word down or say it, it always in their mind included incest, premarital sex, adultery, one-night stands, same-sex activity, prostitution, molestation, bestiality, orgies. They were all acts forbidden within the Jewish community. Now, for all the biblical writers, the sexual starting point is Adam and Eve before sin entered the world. So what we do with our bodies matters. And remember, if you were with us in the fall, Paul made this wild connection between sexuality, holiness, worship, and Jesus himself in his own resurrection. He says this in verse 14, by, by God the Father's power, God raised Jesus from the dead, and he's going to raise us also. He, he said, do you remember this? The resurrection of Jesus, his physical resurrection, proves your actual body, my body matters, proves that God is not done with our bodies, proves our bodies will last forever. Your body, he says, has been stamped for resurrection. It is part of God's plan and work to make all things right. We as Christians don't confess the immortality of the soul. We confess the foreverness of the whole person. That is why we actually confess things like the Apostles' Creed that says, we believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Amen. Now, why in the world was Paul talking about wrong sexual action and worship and Jesus' resurrection all in one breath? Well, remember, he was dealing with vast issues within this church, and one of them in Corinth was all sorts of men were sleeping with religious prostitutes thinking God was just fine with it because grace covers all things. And he said in verse 16, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. For as it is written in Genesis, the two will become one flesh. Paul roots his whole call for sexual holiness back in creation, back to the designer's plan. The two become one. Do you know the story? Genesis 1.27, God created us in his own image. In the image of God, he has created us, male and female, he has created us. So on the sixth day of creation, God creates human beings in his image. And we are the only creatures in all of creation that can know God, walk with God. We are the only creatures in 
in all of creation that have the ability to have personal relationship with God. But there is a distinction between us and God. Unlike God, people have sexual differences. God decides to create two types of us. He creates male and female. God created gender. Gender is not a socially constructed ideal. It is God-given. It is the creator's understanding and expression. That is why later we would read that men and women complement each other. Genesis 2.24, that is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and the two become what? One flesh. And then it says, amazingly, in verse 25, Adam and Eve were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, the Hebrew sense of this passage is that sex is happening before the fall. Sex is not a result of sin. Sex is happening before sin. It was good for love, for bonding, and it gave human beings the ability to procreate, to actually replicate the idea of creation because we're made in the image of the creator. Now, Paul intentionally chooses that phrase, one flesh, to bring everything home. And in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it says that the two shall share one psyche. So sex binds us and blends us and connects us at the root of who we are. It's not just instinct. It's not just a primal act. It's actually something deeper than that. And Paul is concluding here that Adam and Eve are the model. It is natural for alone this was instituted by our creator. Marriage reflects the image of God. Like the Trinity, when a husband and a wife have mutual consenting sex, they become one flesh, yet they remain two different people. They share one fundamental sameness, yet remain two different persons. That is why, as Christians, marriage in the Bible is held so highly, and that is also why sex as an act, amazing and beautiful as it is, cannot be changed. By changing the nature and place of sex, we stop reflecting the essence of God. And for Christians, if you are one here today, who personally know God and love God and have found him through Jesus, we are not allowed to change the nature of sex because we are actually in relationship with the one that has invented it and sent it out. One flesh, one psyche, one essence, one bonding, and Paul is saying there's so much at stake here. Worship, obedience, lordship, love, bonding, life change, and the words go on and on. So as followers of Jesus, we choose not to unite ourselves with anything or anyone other than in the God-given marriage context only. Why? And Paul says it like this in chapter 6, verse 17. Whoever is united with Jesus is one with him in spirit. Porneia is not possible because the believer's body already is connected to Jesus. Our bodies are already owned by Jesus. And through the coming resurrection, we will be with Jesus forever. And why is that possible? Well, because the spirit of Jesus lives in us. So what did Paul tell us as we were gathering in the fall? Verse 18, flee. Run from pornea, flee from sexual morality. All other sins a person commits are outside their body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Paul says, look, you run, you get out. It doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are, how rich or poor you are, you get out, you do not expose yourself. You take dramatic measures to walk away from this because unlike all other sin moments, this bonds you to other human beings. And Paul seals the deal and brings home why sexual sin must be dealt with in the church. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you've received from God? You are not your own. And like I preached in the fall, we fall really hard here. Paul is saying, look, we're married to Jesus. 
That is, we're in covenant with Jesus and how we think and how we act with our bodies actually eternally matter. And, and like I made very clear, we're not talking about struggling. We're not talking about temptation or being inclined sexually one way or another. Struggle and orientation and temptation, listen carefully to my words, is never the ultimate issue for a follower of Jesus. Lordship is the ultimate issue for a follower of Jesus. It is when Christians begin to justify or we affirm or act out sexually against what the scriptures are clear about and believe everything's going to be between us and God okay that we realize we're in trouble. We as Christians may never for ourselves or others justify acts the Bible is explicitly clear on. For Christians, sex is a matter of worship, it's a matter of truth, it's a matter of authority, it's a matter of fun, it's a matter of experience, it's a matter of humility. Now the world can say whatever it wants when it comes to sexuality, but as followers of Jesus, we have become willing worshipers. When we got baptized, we said Jesus was Savior, Leader, and what? Lord. That is why Paul says in verse 20, you've been bought with a price, honor God with your bodies. Now, with all that background, which we've already covered, now we get to chapter 7, and a brand new problem emerges and comes to the surface, and Paul anticipates it. Well, if sex is such a problem, Paul, and in the new heavens and the new earth, post-resurrection, we're not even going to have sex anyway, let's just not do it at all. Let's do the reverse of Nike. Let's not do it. Let's swing the other direction from sex all the time with everyone and everything, and no one cares, and Jesus' grace is going to cover everything, to actually nothing and nobody And Paul says, hold on, hold on, hold on. We actually as Christians don't need to overreact and become prudish in the face of overt sin. This call that was actually taking place in the same church where other people were sleeping with prostitutes, this call to have sex with anyone or actually have sex with no one, Paul comes along and says, you're both wrong. Paul says, look, sex is good and it's fine and it's right within the context of biblical marriage. So Paul now explicitly begins to outline what Jesus' followers are called to do within a marriage context. And by the way, if you're sitting here this morning and you're not married, please listen very carefully. This does not exclude you. It's so amazing. Over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about marriage, singleness, divorce, and remarriage because all of us are in one of those boats and we all need to have a biblical understanding. So when we're in connect groups with each other or in relationship, we are supporting each other in the right biblical direction. So now he begins and he says, okay, I want to talk about sex and marriage, but what he starts with is actually where none of us would start. So he says, okay, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. In other words, he says, okay, I'm going to talk about sex and marriage, so here's my starting point. Celibacy and singleness is great. Good, advantageous, and desirable. Now most of us hear this and our reaction is, what? What what planet or drug is this guy on? Basically, Paul, you're saying no sex, right? And that's what you're implying. He's like, yep, that's right. And then we go, yeah, that's not a good church growth strategy, Paul. That's not going to get more people to church. I mean, can you imagine? Let's use this as our new vision statement, our new slogan. No, let's make this the content of our new social media campaign. Celibacy. Let's celebrate. No sex. Who's in? Come to church. Now, Paul, of course, is the master of setting things up. We need to remember he's responding to a certain issue that's sitting in the church. So there's one group in the church saying you can sin sexually and sleep with whoever you want and God's grace covers it all and there's no consequences. And another group saying we should do nothing at all. Let's set set up so many boundaries and rules we'll never sin. And Paul comes along and says, no, no, no. Everyone calm down. What I'm just starting this conversation, how I'm starting the conversation is like this. No one changed their status quickly. 
If you're married, remain married. And if you're single, remain single until we can have this conversation. He says, let me put it this way. Verse 2. Since there's so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each one her own husband. Now, Paul is already beginning to directly have the conversation to married couples. Here's what Paul is saying. What is the remedy for porneia? What is the remedy for sexual immorality? Is it more Beth Moore Bible studies? Is it more prayer meetings? Is it more fellowship? Is it more connect groups? Is it coming to church more? No. Now, all of that is good, and all of that is fine, and all of that is needed. But this is what Paul really is saying. If you're married, get it on more often, period. A husband and a wife should be having sex, regular sex. This is part of the normal Christian married life. Welcome to the new year, everyone. Merry Christmas. Now, as I was preparing to, let me work this through with you. I was watching I Love Raymond. Anyone used to watch that show? Anyone at all? And uh, when I was watching years ago, I remember this brilliant episode on the regularity of sex. And the, in the conversation, uh, the daughter-in-law talks the infinite, infinite, um, infinite, uh, infinite, Inf- how do you say that? Infamous, thank you, mother-in-law. And in that conversation, somehow the regularity of sex comes up, which you can imagine that conversation. And she says to the mother-in-law, well, how often do you do it? And she said, well, I'm older now. Uh, for the last 20 years, we've done it once a year. And she was sort of shocked by that. She didn't know if that was good or bad. And you can imagine the intensity of the conversation. So she goes home and she says to Raymond, I talked to your mom about uh, your mom and dad's sex life. Well, of course, he freaked out. Why are you talking to my parents about sex? That's so gross, so weird. And, she, she, and he said, well, what did she say? Well, we do it once a year. So then he goes and confronts the father-in-law and the, says to the father-in-law, well, you know, this is weird, but how often do you do it? And the father and says, well, I'm older and, you know, I don't have as much libido as I used to, but, you know, two times a week isn't that bad. And Raymond's like shocked in the moment because he's like, you're having more sex than I am and I'm way younger than you and someone's lying. So they go together and they confront the mother and father-in-law, which is the brilliant moment. And they finally realize that actually the mother-in-law had been lying. It was twice a week, but she didn't want to appear. Well, I won't use a word. Anyway, so here's the amazing thing. When we all watched that, we all laughed. Why? Because it's actually true. All of us are having these conversations And most even Christians don't believe God has something to say about it. And yet he does absolutely in a clear way. He says in verse 3, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone but belongs to the husband. In the same way, the wife's body does not belong to him alone but also to his wife. So each partner in marriage rights each owes this to each other. Now notice, this is revolutionary and shocking if you know history. Paul, writing in an absolutely hierarchical, male-dominated society, says, a husband must give himself to the wife and the wife to the husband. It is mutual. It is not corrosive or coercive or abusive, but should be done regularly. Sex for Christians is about pleasure and fun and procreation, but it is rooted in another place that actually most cultures don't root it in. It is rooted in self-giving service. Now, many of us sitting here today or watching online, if you're married, have had the moment where you're not really into it at night. You're like, I'm not really into it or I'm tired, or you have a headache and you actually do have one, you're not lying, remember the Ten Commandments, it's wrong to lie, or you have issues with kids, or there are scheduling, fill in the blank. All of that's true. There are seasons also because of life or sickness 
where actually sex can't be regular or can't happen at all. But what Paul is saying is a general rule to us as followers of Jesus, living in a sex-soaked culture is actually sex should be given as a service and a gift to your partner and should be regular. Now, did you catch it? Paul says you don't own your body alone. Let, Let the power of this sit this morning among us. In other words, you cannot use your body the way you want to. Paul has no time for the idea that sex is an act of control. Since you are now married, he's saying, and your body is not yours alone to possess, but your body actually belongs to the Holy Spirit and to Jesus and your spouse, in marriage, we become indebted sexually to each other. Now, that flies fundamentally in the modern chant and idea, it's my body, I can do what I want with it, and you have no rights to tell me anything. Well, Paul comes to us as followers of Jesus, not to the world, and says, actually, you can never say that chant. Actually, the modern view is absolutely broken because actually we give up our, commu- we give up our rights for communal selfless love. Now, there's so much more going on here in Corinth, actually, in the ancient world, as in much of the world today. Sex is male-dominated. Needs and desires about the man are dominant and the women are rarely considered or consulted. But for Christians, men and women are equal in the marriage bed. And this, again, in its time, is massive and revolutionary and countercultural. And what we've been seeing on the news lately still proves how relevant this is. In, In Paul's time, men, Jewish or not, pagan or not, would be horrified and insulted and would react violently if you went and told them that their bodies were owned by their wives who were subservient to them. And Paul comes along and says, no, that it's a completely fallen understanding of the world and of sexuality and of relationships. Actually, if you're Christians, you're both made in the image of God. You both have the same access to God. You both are possessed by the Holy Spirit. You actually both can enjoy sex and you both can fall sexually. So actually, you are indebted to each other because of those things. Sex is not just for making babies. It's also for bonding and for love and serving each other. C.S. Lewis, the great Anglican writer, once wrote in his book, The Four Loves, lust is going after the body, love is going after the person. So now it is clear. As followers of Jesus, our bodies are owned by the Holy Spirit and Jesus. And if you're married here this morning, your spouse owns your body too. And you are not even at the center of your picture sexually. How fundamentally opposite is that? from what you've been taught your whole life or what we see in our culture. And then Paul continues, just he, he puts everything on the table. So do not pr- deprive each other except by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So the word deprive here is explosive. This is how it reads in the original language. Do not defraud, do not deceive, do not swindle, do not cheat your marriage partner because you refuse to have sex with them. By doing this, you defraud what is actually their God-given right. So if you're married, you're indebted to each other. A marriage couple should be having sex regularly, so you are being served, you are serving, and so in the end, you choose to not go to another source physically, sexually, or electronically. But then Paul, in the exact same breath, stops and says, but there is a time to stop having sex. There's actually a time where couples who are married need to stop doing that for a while, and it's called spiritual disciplines. He says, you should actually make an agreement, if you need to do this, to fast and pray. Now, Paul's showing us the exception, not the norm. 
Now, what we're seeing is that there are two spiritual disciplines behind Paul's call here. One is fasting and one is chastity. And remember, as we talk about in this church all the time, spiritual disciplines are key to our ongoing walk with Jesus. They are one of the five key discipleship understandings here at C4. They are guaranteed places, guaranteed environments to speak to Jesus, to rest in Jesus, and to hear from Jesus. And so Paul calls married couples to participate in fasting and chastity. Now, never forget, fasting can be tied with prayer, secrecy, confession, uh, silence, and solitude. But here's the point. Fasting brings everything that you are physically, emotionally, sexually, and spiritually to God. So if you're a married Christian couple this morning, let me ask you a question. When was the last time you actually stopped having sex to intentionally fast, to pray for your marriage or the church or, or a major issue you're facing or, or the future or the salvation of neighbor and friends. Well, most of us, if we were even going to talk this morning, and I can tell most of you aren't, would sheepishly say, never. Well, Paul is saying to many of us actually this morning, you probably should be considering and wrestling through if you're supposed to have more sex. And some of us actually need to have the reverse conversation and say, are we needing to give God space to move through the active spiritual disciplines? Now, as he says this, he immediately knows there's a problem. So he says this in the exact same breath. He says, but after you fasted and prayed by mutual consent, then come together quickly, have sex quickly so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, Paul importantly points out, number one, there has to be mutuality when there's this fasting and praying moment. You just can't say, well, I'm going to fast and pray for the next year, and you have to get on board with that. That's not the way this works. It's mutual. But then he says, when the fast is done, you come back if you're married quickly together. Why? Because the kingdom of darkness is going to take advantage of the situation sexually. And let me preach this with authority this morning. The devil is not some allegory for temptation that Paul uses. He is real. Fallen angels will tempt and offer situations to destroy your marriage, your testimony for Jesus. Healthy sex is spiritual warfare. When you choose as a married couple, as Christians, not to have regular healthy sex, you are endangering yourself supernaturally. This is actually one of the ways you stand in a sex-soaked culture when the day of evil is at your door. This is one way the Bible is explicitly clear about. Now, notice what Paul says. He says, you come back quickly together. Why? Because of your lack of self-control. See, the kingdom of darkness, the devil needs you to open the door for him to get in. You have to do it. He just can't walk into your body or back into your marriage bed or into your sexual life or into your marriage or into your kids or your family. You have to make the decision to let him in. We learned about this in Ephesians. Remember, Paul was wrestling through unity in the church and also marriage and was also trying to deal with habitual sin. And he chose anger as an example, but it applies to any form of sin. Remember what he said in Ephesians 4.26, in your anger, there's the example, don't sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a what? What's the word? Foothold. The word foothold in Greek means place or foot inside of you. And Ephesians is written to Christians. Paul is saying if you don't deal with your anger, you keep habitually getting involved in it. As a Christian, you will give the demonic influence, locality, occasion, opportunity, place, region, room to live in you, in your body 
in your mind, in your will. Same with sex. If you get involved in porneia, with sexual immorality, you will give him a foothold, room inside. Now, this warning and possibility does not mean you lose your Christianity or your faith. Because actually, Paul says three verses later in the book of Ephesians, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God whom you've been sealed with until the day of redemption. In other words, you can actually be owned by Jesus, walk with Jesus, but you can give the devil a foothold in your life, grieve the Spirit, you don't lose salvation, but the Spirit of God gets grieved in you. And like I preached a few years ago in Ephesians, the point is this. All sorts of us have allowed almost like a Trojan horse in ourselves and in our family and our church. You're saying, hold on, John. You're saying a demon in me but doesn't own me, uh, not possessed but demonized? Yes. How many of the demonic are crawling around in our church, in this worship service right now, in our families and in our marriage beds and in our worship services because we play with fire as Christians and do not think there will be any supernatural consequences or they'd be so extreme. But I want to remind everyone this morning as we start this new year, this is war. This is not about fairness or rights or the way you think this goes down. Just because you don't think this could happen to you or this doesn't fit your theology or you don't really believe in demons or you don't feel anything bad happen when you did some stuff sexually does not mean it has not happened. Paul is basically saying this to married couples in the most famous sexual city in the ancient world. Keep your sex life regular so you do not give a foothold that in the end will actually lead to the breakdown or breakup of your marriage and your testimony to Jesus and your family. And then he says, talking about fasting and praying and sex life, I say this, by the way, as a concession, not a command. And then he utters these amazing Pauline words. I actually wish that all men were like me, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, the other has that. Now, Paul was single, and he loved being single, and he viewed it as a holy calling. Without blushing or embarrassment, he says, I'm single. And actually, I wish all of you were single too. But he goes farther than this. Notice, he doesn't just say, well, I'm single because I couldn't find a mate. I'm single and, you know, eHarmony didn't work out this year. I'm single because I'm divorced. He says, look, I'm single because actually in my case, notice this, it's a gift. This is the same language in Greek we use for every other spiritual gift. Teaching, prophecy, apostolic work, pastoring tongues, mercy, faith, giving evangelism, leadership. In other words, here's what Paul is teaching us. Some people within the church community will have a supernatural gift, a gift of the Holy Spirit, which is directly connected to a single life call. Here's how one scholar wrote it this way. The gift of celibacy and singleness is the special ability that gives, God gives certain members of the body of Jesus to remain single and enjoy it, to be unmarried and not suffer undue sexual temptation. Now, many of you here this morning do not have this gift, But we are all called, no matter whether we're single or married, to the discipline of chastity and fasting, either because we are not married or actually we're married and for a time we may be called into it. There may be some others of you here this morning that have a gift of celibacy and singleness and you've never explored that and you shouldn't be afraid to do it. Now here's what Paul says. He says, now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for them to remain unmarried as I am. If you're not married, more of your time and money and life will not be divided between what is good and what is best. You can give it all to the kingdom and the work of God. That's why later, and we're going to get into this in the next few weeks, he says, an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about how, about the affairs of the world, how he can please his wife. His interests are divided. 
Now, can you hear, imagine hearing this for the first time right in church? And all the single people are sitting there and Paul's saying, well, just don't get married. You're like, oh man, I have to remain single. Like I can't get married. I can't find love and companionship. No, all he's saying is before you make a decision, I want you to see the kingdom picture first to see actually what's good, better, and best. But then he says very bluntly, very plainly, very honestly in verse 9, but if they can't control themselves, they should marry. It's better to marry than burn with passion. So if you're not living contently and consistently, get married. And by the way, here's Paul's point. Celibacy, singleness, and marriage are not more or less spiritual. Marriage is not some concession just to deal with lust, and singleness is not just some dutiful call that there's no life to. Actually, we're going to see in the next three weeks, God loves both. So here's the question as we begin this new year, as we, again, think about the phrase of the series, devoted ones. As we live in Toronto, and you can think about all the implications of that, what do we do as we work through this very in-your-face passage? Well, let's put everything on the table. Number one, and I know there's been an uncomfortability growing in the room, not because of the topic, but because of the exceptions. Of course, there are multiple issues we would need to talk about to see how this works out well. This is a general command for us from God as Christians. Are there exceptions for seasons? Of course. Some of you are in medical conditions and you just can't have sex anymore. Of course. Some of you are trying to work through abuse in your marriage and, and so sex is a difficult moment for you. Some of you are sexual addicts and you're trying to work through this sex on demand issue. Others of you have historic abuse that wasn't found in your marriage that affects your sex life in your marriage. And there are other issues. That is why as a church, we work so hard to provide safe, biblically informed areas for you to work through issues so on the other end of it, you can joyfully, with life, obey the scriptures. That is why today, for example, we talked about launching freedom sessions because that is an environment where you work through history so you can find freedom. That's why we're so serious about restoration prayer in this church. That is why we encourage Christians to talk and go to therapy without any shame or guilt. See, the goal is restoration. And let me just say this, by the power of the Holy Spirit and God's word and God's community, with real help, healing is possible. Our God can bring anything back from the dead. He's in the resurrection business. That is actually why we are encouraging the church to take steps to find healing and freedom on this side of eternity. So actually when you are married, if you are, and you go to have sex, there is not barriers between you and your wife and you can joyfully obey what Jesus is inviting you and commanding you to do. Here's the other thing we need to work through this morning. Sex is privilege and sex is duty. Sex is not male-centric. It's not the privilege of men and the duty of women. It is the privilege and duty of both of us. God is very clear in the Bible. We cannot do what we want with our own bodies sexually. And here's the other thing we all need to wrestle down. We are not allowed to deprive our, our spouses. I love one great scholar, Craig Bloomberg is his name, who is trying to summarize this whole passage. And I'm just going to read the quotation to you because it brings out so much life and health. He says, you know, verse 3 through 5 proves crucial in our understanding of the role in sex and marriage. It is something each partner owes the other. So it should never be used as bribe or reward for good behavior or something to be withheld as threat or punishment. I just need to stop there. If you're doing that, repent. That is a, that never, you never bring life to your marriage if you use sex as bribe, reward, or threat or punishment. That is not how God has designed it. 
Husbands and wives alike must be sensitive both to the emotional and physical states of each other and not insist on sex on demand. But neither should one partner consistently try to get out of satisfying his or her own spousal sexual needs. The mutual agreement and submission, Paul, and look, look at the word, commands here, this is not option, should be in fact applied to all areas of marriage. So what's the take home this morning? Well, to quote the most eminent of theologians, Marvin Gaye, if the spirit moves you, let me groove you, let's get it on. Because actually, when you look at that phrase, he didn't get it, but that's exactly what Paul is saying. That this idea that as Christians, that we're prudish and the marriage bed is not for us. Our boss invented this thing. It's ours, not someone else's. And God has commanded us and commissioned us and invited us into a life that involves a lovely, long-term, growing sexual experience. And as a church, we should never avoid this. We should never downplay this, nor should we overplay this. This is what we're called to do. Do you need to work through the exceptions? Yes. But if you're a married couple, your take home this week, even if you're married to an unbeliever, is this. How is our sex life? In light of the scripture, how would we change this? Are we serving each other? Do we even talk about this? This is the conversation my wife and I had this week over this passage. Because this is as practical as it gets. And, and why does Paul say this? Because he knows this is how we're designed. And we know, he knows this is reflection of God and what we're called to do. Now, some of you also need to go home this week. And this could be a really interesting conversation. The old connect groups are going to be really interesting this week. Have fun. It is this. Some of you are like, oh, I'm not going to that connect party this afternoon. Yes, do it. No, it's you. It's honest. But listen, here's the next thing. Some of you need to ask the question about fasting and sex. Have you ever actually fasted with your spouse over an issue where you've given up something for a day or a week or a month and said, we're going to pray about something together instead of doing this, this act sexually, and we're going to pray so God would move or we would hear from the Lord. But I would just want to end with a warning, not a downer, just a warning. Satan wants to destroy you. He does. He hates every human being on earth because we're all made in the image of God. When he sees a human being, he hates us because we are the image of his enemy. He hates Christians even more because we're filled with Jesus Christ. And we are the greatest threat to his kingdom. And one of the greatest things that he wants to do is destroy marriages, and he wants to destroy them sexually. And Paul is explicit here that part of a normal Christian life is the regularity of sex, whatever that means for you, as a protection and precaution and a standing against him. How many Christian leaders have fallen sexually? We see it all the time. How many marriages have fallen when you really get involved? All these affairs and pornography addictions and all. Listen, all I'm saying this morning is this supernatural conflict is real. And when you fall sexually, you actually demean or break the testimony of Jesus. And so Paul is absolutely clear this morning. This is a real war. Don't pretend it's not a real war. Don't run naked into the battle. And the, like, just don't do, what are you doing? You take this seriously. We take this seriously because, again, if marriages get destroyed, families get destroyed, if families get destroyed, children get destroyed, and then the faith arc crashes because it's so, what, hypocritical. The scriptures were relevant 2,000 years ago, and they're as relevant today. And God's call for us is not to be prudish or embarrassed 
or run. But to be honest, so for some of us, we need to just commit to working through issues so we can find freedom. Others of us need to have conversations with our spouses, and maybe that's an uncomfortable moment, but do it about what the scriptures say. Others of us need to talk about fasting and praying. But all of us, this is like a huge underground river that runs in, in a church. This keeps so much right together. And so would you stand across this auditorium this morning? Would you open Port Perry? Just stand for a moment. We'll just pray together as we're all going to respond in communion at our different sites. But let's just take a moment. Lord, thank you so much that your word is relevant and it's good, and it's kind, and you tell us all of this not because you're angry or setting up a bunch of rules. You love us. So number one, first thing we all need to pray if we're Christians is this. We confess the lordship of Jesus Christ over our sexuality. Could you say amen to that? He just, he has, he has full authority, pure and simple. Second of all, we pray, Lord, for people that have history and brokenness, and this conversation is so hard. And we pray, Lord, uh, for them that you'd begin healing. We pray for others of us who are married. We pray, Lord, that you would work this out right in a holy way. We pray also across our church, Lord, too, that if you're calling some of us to fast and pray, that actually you'd make that clear. And we also pray over the next few weeks as we talk about divorce and remarriage and singleness, too, that there would be a great understanding of God's will and heart and love for all of us. So, Lord, begin in this new year to actually do new things or bring old things back to life that need to be brought back. And our last prayer is this. Lord Jesus Christ, deliver us from the evil one. May not one marriage fall in this church uh, because of the evil one's work or our lack of self-control. Hear our prayer, O Lord. Amen. We're going to take communion as a very fitting response, and I, I'm, I'm not going to speak just to you here at Ajax uh, because we've just cut off to Port Perry. Sorry, while I was praying, huh, so I'm just going to do this. I had a great sense someone is in the room, and you have been planning to have an affair or something, and you've not done it yet. This is the Lord's moment. I, had, I had did not, not have this until this moment. This is the moment the Lord is speaking to you. I don't know if it's virtual, physical, emotional, but the Lord is coming to you and says, do not do it. Your marriage will be recovered, but you have to obey. So whoever you are, the Lord is speaking to you. Repent. Do not commit the sin you're about to commit. The Lord's mercy is in this place for you in this moment. And you thank God for that because he spared you so much pain. So Lord, whoever that person is, have mercy on them and come close. And the rest of us, we're going to respond in communion today. We're going to reaffirm the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're going to reaffirm that we're forgiven. We're going to reaffirm that Jesus loves us. We're going to reaffirm that one day we're going to actually not take communion because we're going to see him face to face. But let me tell you what the scriptures say. If you're not a Christian, do not take this because you've not met the one it represents. If you are a Christian, you're welcome to the table. Jesus taking the bread saying, I was going to die, right? My body broken. The juice representing the blood of Christ spilled, a new covenant of forgiveness. And this is a time where you say thank you. This is a time you say, Lord, what do I need to repent of? Maybe there's some stuff sexually you need to talk through or actually some marriage stuff. But this is also a time you celebrate the goodness and the forgiveness and, and the continuing grace of God. If you're a Christian and you refuse to deal with God, then you are not to take this until you're willing to deal with him. 
But for all of us who are gathered today, as we take communion, it's going to be passed to you today. Dedicate your marriage if you're single. If you're, uh, sorry, dedicate your marriage if you're married. If you're single, dedicate your singleness to the Lord, whether chosen or not, and just say, Lord, I, I invite you into my life. So Lord, would you meet us in this moment? It says where two or three Christians gather, Jesus is present. It says that actually this is the blood of Christ and the body of Christ. And so this is a guaranteed place of meeting. Would you, Jesus, walk through these rows and meet us, speak to us, restore us, help us, and may we find great joy and hope because Jesus has not abandoned us. He is with us and he loves us. In the name of God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.